listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We are, we're discussing Jonathan Edwards' work on the freedom of the will, in which he is investigating the claims as to what freedom of the will is according to Arminianism and as it relates to certain Enlightenment thinkers also. And so we have looked at a series of definitions of words as to how he is going to use certain words and what they imply about moral agency and the will being caused, uh, the will being the, what identified with desire, it being the last dictate of the understanding, it being the, being the greatest apparent good. And so all of these things imply that the will is, a, is an actual choice that arises out of ideas that are present in the soul that have to do with our, our values and that, that constitute our, uh, our affections. <clears throat> and then he set forth the Arminian understanding in which the Arminian is trying to create a sense of, of freedom of the will. So to do a freedom of the will, it cannot be caused by internal propensities. It cannot be something that causes it if it's free. And he has given us these ideas that must be true in the Arminianism if their view of freedom is, this, is to be defended. That is that the will has a self-determining power which results in an endless, endless regress of causes, that it must be completely indifferent at the moment of choice which makes it in a state of equilibrium, which cannot be then broken without a cause. And then the idea of contingence, which it means that it is basically unconnected to any causes. It is purely accidental. Then he sets forth who God is as a moral agent in which none of those things is true of him. He asks, how can we be made in the image of God if we're made in the image of a person who is absolutely and perfectly uh, acts uh, in accordance with the prevailing causes, the holy causes that are within him. And so he asked the question, does anything such as Arminians conceive to be freedom exist, or can it even be conceived to exist? Such a thing as beings or causes or decisions uh, coming uh, into uh, coming into being without a cause is almost the same thing, uh, has the, the same revulsion of mind as what Edward said about trying to conceive of, of nothing. It's a, it's a complete contradiction. And so he is trying to reduce the Ar Arminian idea to a complete irrationality on the one hand, to something that is absolutely averse to all uh, reality as we see it, on the other hand. So now he asks the, the question whether volition can arise without a cause through the activity of the nature of the, of the soul. Uh, and his discussion of that is that it has absolutely no possibility. No will can come. Anything that can be called the will, anything that can be called a desire, uh, cannot come into being uh, unless there is some prior activity of the soul, unless there are some preponderant uh, ideas that uh, determine what, what we think is, is good. Um, 
He then engages the idea of Arminian evasions. He says that they are impertinent. They create an inconsistency uh, in language. Uh, does the will, he asks, act uh, when the mind is in a state of perfect indifference? And if the will did act in such a state, could such an action be moral in any sense? If all of our, the morality of our actions is determined by a pre-existing condition of soul, it is out of the heart that proceed all the issues of life. It is out of the heart that proceed envies and rivalries and dissensions and factions and lust and so forth. If that is true, and if the action has its moral uh, texture because it is a reflection of the heart, then how can uh, an action that is such as the Arminian would want it to be have any moral consequence at all? Can it be moral at all? The very thing that the Arminian is trying to establish is moral responsibility, but they absolutely destroy moral responsibility by trying to disconnect all actions from a, uh, the, the moral tendencies of the, of the heart. <clears throat> he asked the question whether the will Concerning the will, what determines the will when the mind is in a state of perfect indifference? It is the same as saying that the mind has a preference when it has no preference. Uh, that there is something we prefer to do rather than something else, which is a very act of the will. The very, everything that a person does is what he does in preference to something else, but such actions would arise our preferences would have no preference. Choosing is preferred, which means the indifference cannot exist at the moment of choice. Uh, a thing that is moved at a state of perfect equilibrium is a thing that has absolutely no possibility of even, of even happening. It is a contradiction to all reality to have a state of uh, something in perfect equilibrium actually move. Something must break its equilibrium. The least degree of an antecedent bias, Edward says, must be inconsistent with this notion of liberty. Arminians tried to diminish uh, the antecedent bias more and more and more in order to, to create a sphere of liberty. But if they are consistent, they must uh, diminish uh, the antecedent bias to absolutely nothing, which would mean that no preference is ever done. But the least bit of antecedent bias Edwards argues, becomes the cause of any movement that is based upon that antecedent bias, no matter how small uh, it is. The supposed power of the will is precisely in its preferences. A free act <clears throat> must be done in a state of perfect freedom, according to this, uh, the Arminian, but such a state of perfect freedom is impossible to exist, such a state of a moral being without bias, a moral being without preference, a moral being without any moral texture to his mind, that is the thing that causes him to act, is an impossibility in a moral world. The Arminian destroys the very thing that they are seeking to establish. <clears throat> he then investigates uh, the question, is the liberty of the will opposite to all necessity? Is it indeed true that perfect contingence is essential to freedom? 
Can any event exist that has no reason why it exists or that is not connected with its cause? Obviously, Edwards has already defined things in such a way and has argued from the standpoint of common observation and common experience and uh, philosophical uh, issues of philosophical necessity that it's impossible for a thing to exist that has no cause except the, uh, the, the single self-existent being. If one precedent does not in fact produce a following event, then it is not sufficient to produce it. And so if you diminish the precedence to the, uh, the bare minimum, uh, it in fact is the thing that causes the event to happen. Uh, if it does not cause it to happen, then it is not sufficient to produce it. He discusses also the connection of the acts of will with what he calls the dictates of the understanding, which he has already set forth as a definition of the will. It is the last dictate of the understanding. An act of the will is as the greatest apparent good is. Now he, he quotes two persons in that in which he, that he is opposing, but he gives their definition because he's demonstrating that their definition is inconsistent with what they are trying to argue. This is Daniel Whitby and a, and a man named Turnbull, that an act of the will is as the greatest apparent good is. He says this defeats their notion of liberty. While it confuses understanding with the will, Edwards will not dispute that, but it does not serve their notion of liberty. If not, then argument does not attain any consequence connected with the compelling nature of evidence. So he goes back to the whole idea of what is reason and what is evidence and how do you argue a case. And even in the case of arguing about what the freedom of the will is, if you dismiss the idea that there can be any uh, causative factors preceding a conclusion or preceding uh, an action, then you do the same thing with the relation of sentences and argumentation and subjects and predicates and causes and effects and compelling evidence to drive you uh, to uh, draw their conclusion. It, it is a, it's a self-defeating position that the Arminian has, has taken. <clears throat> in, uh, then in, his, in part three, he continues with that, 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 that same kind of argumentation showing the self-defeating nature of all of these different uh, definitions and, the, and how they're trying to, to create some way of, of freedom that, is, that, that moves away from the idea of, um, of, cause, of uh, cause and effect. They even try the, the, the idea of foreknowledge, and he shows that foreknowledge is the same thing as, is, as causative if you realize that things that are already passed uh, are certain, and if, they, if God foreknows them, then they're already passed in his mind, and so he does not foreknow them if they're not necessary. Uh, if he does foreknow them, they are uh, necessary. Uh, and so then he moves into a section in which he uh, brings more into the argument about who God is and who Christ is, and is God a moral being? Is he a determined being? Is he a moral being? Was Christ in his humanity, a determined being for righteousness. And if he was, does this mean he was not a moral being? And so he, he begins to argue for both from a theocentric standpoint and a Christocentric standpoint, uh, again, to show that uh, the acts of the will that are determined by previous 
uh, propensities are free acts because every person who has these constituent elements in him is a free moral agent. <clears throat> yeah, so in section one of this section, of, of, of part three, he discusses God's <clears throat> moral excellency, which is necessary, yet at the same time it is virtuous and praiseworthy. All of God's attributes are necessary. God is a self-existent being. He is as He is. And all of His attributes are defined either in natural terms or in moral terms. Those natural aspects of His being are governed by the moral aspects of His being. They can be isolated for the sake of discussion, such as, as power and, uh, and knowledge, uh, as natural uh, attributes. They can be set as moral attributes, such as love and passion and mercy and justice, but in God these all are in one single being so that all of His natural attributes operate uh, in perfect accord with His moral uh, attributes. So there's a, there's a perfect consistency between His moral propensity and what He actually does in any, in any case. And all of these attributes necessarily exist with, within Him and it is that very thing that makes him holy, 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 thrice holy, that makes him infinitely holy, is that his moral attributes are always expressions of, or his natural attributes are always expressions of his moral attributes. And so God's moral excellency is necessary, and yet it is virtuous and it is praiseworthy. According to the Arminians, the ascription of virtue may only be given to those that are done without necessity. God, however, is holy by necessity, and yet He is worthy of all praise and of all admiration. He can do no wrong. It is impossible for Him to do wrong. And yet this very impossibility of His doing wrong is one of the factors that leads us to say He is worthy of infinite praise. So from the very nature of the divine attributes, relationship of natural attributes and moral attributes, the impossibility of God doing wrong and yet His being most holy and most praiseworthy is the most fundamental, clear demonstration that uh, the, the, the moral texture of actions is not destroyed by an existing, uh, a pre-existing uh, tendency or inclination. <clears throat> In section two of this, of this part, he then talks about the acts of the human soul of Jesus. He says, the acts of the will of the human soul of Jesus were necessarily holy, yet truly virtuous. Now, what is it that makes his actions necessarily holy? Well, this is one of those amazing biblical studies that Edwards does when he's after the proving a point. One thing, he says, is that God promised him that he would uphold him by his spirit and that he would not fail. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, Isaiah 49, 7 through 9. These were promises given by God. God himself would sustain him. And, and so God's promise cannot fail. His sustaining of him in perfection cannot fail. This was, this was, uh, was prophecy. So it was impossible for God the Father to fail in upholding God the Son uh, in the uh, redemptive work that he undertook for the glory of the Father and for the glory of the triune God. The second thing, promises made to the, to the Messiah of his future glory and kingdom. 
God's absolute promise makes the thing promised necessary. <clears throat> and their failing to take, place, to, to, to take place absolutely uh, impossible. And then he refers to Psalm 110, verse 4, Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Uh, these are promises, absolute promises made to the Messiah that he would have a kingdom. Uh, and so they depend upon the, 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 mor the morality and the glory of these things and the certainty of them uh, depends upon the promise of God which makes it absolutely necessary. A third point that he makes is the promise to the church uh, of old, that is, those that were believers under the old covenant, and the justification that God gave to them upon belief were implicit promises that God would give them a righteous, a righteous sinless Savior. That they were not saved by faith per se as righteousness, but faith in a promised Messiah, faith in one that was coming. Uh, they saw Christ. Uh, Moses was content to suffer the reproach of Christ rather than enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. And so it's, it's clear that they saw Christ in this. And so this, this promise that God would give them a righteous, sinless Savior could not fail. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Isaiah 11, 6 and 7, uh, and so forth. So this is something that was necessary to happen in the incarnation, and yet that does not diminish the actual righteousness that was promised. Uh, the promise to the church of great expansion, that there would be an uh, increase of the church, that it would exist, that it would continue to exist, that it would come in final, finally to glory, that it would be the bride of Christ. All of these promises of expansion and continued existence and of of finally being with Christ in eternity must necessarily happen and they depended upon the success of the Messiah, the, the bridegroom. The promises made to Joseph and Mary uh, about this is one who would sit on the throne of his father, David. Uh, this is one who would save his people from their sins. These promises could not come to pass unless there was an absolute necessity of their coming to pass by the power of God and the determination of God and yet they are most moral and they, they bring righteousness into the world. Uh, the promise that salvation should be offered to sinners through a Savior, 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Uh, the certainty of these promises of salvation, which depended upon the righteousness of the Redeemer, uh, make it necessary. There's a d direct connection between what's Edwards called the subject and the predicate. Necessary connection. Uh, a righteous Savior will come, or a righteousness is demanded for salvation. A righteous Savior has come, therefore righteousness will be in the world. This demands the absolute righteousness of the Savior. It is necessary, and yet it is true righteousness. The promise to His Son before the foundation of the world. And he cites Titus 1 Two in this, promised before the foundation of the world. To whom was it promised? It was promised to Christ, perhaps to us in Christ, but certainly to Christ, uh, and that, that would result in, in godliness and would result in the hope of eternal life. <clears throat> Promise made to the Son by the Father, Psalm 46 through 8, Hebrews 10, 5 through 9, uh, of sustaining Him and of giving Him a kingdom. Uh, the salvation of all saints from the fall to the death of Christ. Is their salvation certain or was it uncertain? 
Is it clear that Christ himself indeed would do those things that their salvation and their faith were dependent upon? Or was it possible for them to have their faith to have failed? And Edward says, no, it wasn't possible for, for their faith to have failed. It was based upon promises. It was based upon God's own word to them. And so the righteousness of Christ was necessary by those promises. And yet it was true righteousness. Uh, Jesus, before he finished his course of obedience, predicted his resurrection and ascension. He could not have predicted his resurrection and ascension unless he had been absolutely certain that he was going to finish his course of righteousness. If he had not finished his course righteously, then he would be under condemnation. But the fact that he was one person, and yet he was God and man in one person, was one of the factors that determined that even in his humanity, though it was tested, it could not sin because he, as a person, could not be a person that was under condemnation. Impossible. And so he knew that he would be raised from the dead uh, in his humanity, and that he would ascend into heaven and that he would be an interceder for those who were dependent upon him. It was absolutely necessary, and yet it was dependent upon a perfect righteousness. So <clears throat> Edward says, I look upon it as a point clearly and absolutely determining the controversy between Calvinists and Arminians concerning the necessity of such a freedom of the will as insisted on by the latter in order to moral agency, etc. Et and that is the righteousness of the humanity of Christ that is based upon the promises and based upon the necessary results. Then he has an, a second <coughs> section in which he bases it upon on, on the person of Christ. He argues that his holy behavior was properly of the nature of virtue was worthy of praise, he was a moral agent, he was a subject of law, of precept, of command, he was in a state of trial, genuinely so, and yet all of these things are within the context of it being absolutely impossible for him to have failed in any of these areas. He would continue to be worthy of praise, he would continue to live in accordance with the virtue that was in him. He would continue to be a moral agent who always decided uh, those things that were right and good. He, though he was a subject of the law, he would never disobey the law. And though he was in a state of trial, the state of trial would certainly end in his being pronounced uh, righteous, being made perfect, Hebrews 5 says. He became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. So within this context, there are promises made to those who overcome with him, Luke 22. Edwards asked the question, second, how absurd would it be for any Christian to conclude that Jesus was necessarily inclined to good, therefore he is not worthy of reward? Well, what an absurdity for a Christian to make, that Jesus was not worthy of reward because he was necessarily inclined to holiness and to righteousness. And this means that every advantage we have from Him by His being our Savior is lost at the same time. His example is to prompt us to patience and virtue because He was patient under the most severe suffering. His example leads us to a, 
a righteous patience and leads us to value virtue and holiness above all things. He argues also God is peculiarly pleased with the righteousness of his servant, though he is determined to this, though there was no way he could have failed his state of trial, although he had the law written in his heart in such a way as he could not disobey it, it is for that very reason that God is peculiarly pleased with the righteousness of this servant, pleased in a way that sees that he has exhausted all the possibilities of righteousness. His righteousness is perfect. It is complete. And he refers to Psalm 46 and 7, John 10, 17 and 18. And another point unto this, he says, Christ speaks of eternal life as the reward of his obedience. John 12, 49 and 50, John 17, 2 and 3, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, Philippians 2, 7 through 9. And if eternal life is the reward of his obedience, then it must be an obedience that deserves reward. There it is a, per, it, it is a perfect righteousness. If it could not deserve a reward, if it were not something that were in itself righteous, if it were merely neutral, if it did not have any virtue in it, and yet Christ speaks beforehand of eternal life as the reward of his obedience, therefore it must be necessary if he speaks of it as being a reward, and it must be righteous if it is the result of his obedience. And so from the standpoint of, of God's own character and from the standpoint of the incarnation and the promises connected with it, the righteousness connected with it, the dependence that we have upon it, uh, there can be no discrepancy between a thing being necessary morally and its being truly righteous and commendable and praiseworthy morally. <clears throat> well, in the next section, God, uh, um, God, excuse me, Edwards, uh, Edwards deals with the fall and is giving up a people, uh, giving up people to their propensities to evil proves uh, that necessity is consistent with moral agency. Uh, he talks about <clears throat> this happening in Romans 1, 24, where God gave them up to their hearts and uh, though God gave them up to this, they're worthy of greater and greater condemnation. So if God giving up these people in, in time uh, and to work out the propensity of their nature is something that results in greater condemnation, then it cannot be something that has no moral texture uh, to it. If he gives them up in time, he can also determine to give them up in eternity. For in actuality, to give them up in time means that it is that, that his determination to do what he actually does cannot be an unrighteous act on God's part. Also, he, he, uh, he looks at Judas and he looks at, at Pilate. And Jesus talking about uh, there that Judas, though he was determined to be the one that would, would uh, give over Jesus, yet uh, he tells Pilate that he is worthy of greater condemnation. The Arminian position would rule sin out of the world entirely because we are excused for any degree of indisposition to righteousness that we have wholly or in part. And so the more corrupt you are, the more propensity you have 
uh, to unrighteousness, the greater your hostility to God that makes it impossible for you to love him means the less sin you have and the less in need of redemption you are. And so the more corrupt you are, the less you're in need of divine salvation. This is a point that Edwards makes. This is a point that Fuller was greatly influenced by, and we'll see that when we look at Fuller. <clears throat> the Arminian position also renders the doctrine of justification unnecessary, both from the standpoint of an imputed righteousness and from the standpoint of forgiveness. Well, why is that? Because depravity, to the degree that it operates in a certain way, releases us from responsibility. But all of our sin arises out of depravity, arises out of a propensity against God. And so we need no imputed righteousness because the righteousness of Christ was necessary and therefore not righteous at all. And forgiveness is not necessary because all that we do under the, the compelling influence of indwelling sin, we cannot be held accountable for, therefore we need no forgiveness. Um, well, if these things are something that operate within us, is it consistent then for God to give commands? Is it consistent for Him to have expectations that we will obey His commands? Is it consistent with this view of evil that we actually have duties that we should do? Or is evil something that is so compelling within us that it cannot be said that we have any duties? So Edwards argues in another section, that commands and obligations are consistent with the moral inability to obey. And this is where the idea of moral inability comes in as opposed to natural inability. All commands are directed to the will. They're given by God. They're things that we have all of the capacities within our uh, makeup to obey, but our reason for not obeying them is because of our moral perversity and our rejection of God. But it is right for God to command because those creatures that are made in His image should obey His moral commands. If the will emerges from something before it that is involuntary, that thing is not the subject of a command. But the will does not emerge from something before it that is involuntary. It is those things that are within us, Edwards conceives as being voluntary because of the union we have with, with Adam. Our propensity against God is something that works itself out uh, in our will. Uh, and therefore, because the will consists not only of the action that is done, but consists of those things that compel the action, then it is right for the will to be a subject of command. The will may be commanded to do something that it is not inclined to do. Disobedience may be continued even after the command is given because the, the soul has no sufficient motive to obey the command. But this is moral inability. It is blameworthy unless a lack of inclination to obey, unless a propensity against the holiness of God carries with it its own excuse. Well, of course, all of these, Edward shows, are 
are uh, absurd. God would not have the right to command anything that was intrinsically evil. He would not have the right even to uh, command Satan. He could not hold Satan himself responsible for his action. He could not condemn Satan because Satan is uh, irredeemably set in his evil, which action of God, if the Arminian is right, makes it unjust of God to condemn Satan. Well, section five, <clears throat> he talks about the, whether or not sincerity of desires and endeavors uh, excuse non-performance of good things. Well, Edwards discusses this from the standpoint of real sincerity, that there are no real sincere desires that, that, that consist of the nature of true virtue. There's no other kind of sincerity. Uh, that but perfectly true virtue, and so to talk of sincere desires that are, that are less than that that constitute true virtue is to say that sincere desires are not really sincere desires. Section six, he talks about the liberty of indifference is inconsistent with virtue, going back to one of the points of, the, of Arminianism in which he's, or, or indifference is necessary for their understanding of moral responsibility. And so he says it is against common sense that virtue consists of coldness and utter indisposition to any action. According to indifference as a standard of virtue, anything arising from preference or prejudice loses any moral quality by this loss of freedom and thus can, cannot be blamed or praised. So a preference to love God and an, and an unchallenged love for Him and desire to do His will makes obedience to him something that has no virtue in it at all. It is not something that is morally worthy. So the unfallen angels who praise him night and day are not moral beings in any good sense because they are, have been uh, approved and they have been constituted in their holiness uh, by the, the power and the grace of God uh, they praise Him purely without any propensity to disobey Him, and that is a condition, according to Arminianism, that must not be praiseworthy. The indifference that is so desired as a state of freedom actually, in many cases, is most heinous in itself. The degree of unconcern in light of the heinousness of things proposed to the mind is to that degree sinful. What if you had people that were completely indifferent toward murder and could commit murder in just a state of complete indifference or adultery or bestiality or blaspheming God? This shows that virtue consists in this case of having a predisposition against such things. In a state of indifference, we should just as easily and equally as often do such things as to avoid them. Since all of them are purely accidental, they don't arise out of any preference, they don't arise out of any sense of moral obligation that has insinuated itself into our soul. And so all these things ought to be happening just as often and just as easily and not be seen as crimes at all, as avoiding them, since there is no internal preference either for one or for the other. Now, in, what about evangelism? The Armenian is very con concerned about evangelism and, what, and how the idea of, of an, an, a, a previous tendency to something would affect evangelism. 
And Edward simply asks the question, well, what is the purpose of making an evangelistic presentation? What is the purpose of seeking to persuade someone to believe in Christ? Aren't you offering motives? Isn't the very act of persuasion, the very act of proclamation, the very act of setting before people uh, the goodness of God and the horribleness of being in a lost condition finally and going to hell, aren't all of these things that are persuasive, that are intended to give motivation to do one thing or another? But if the Arminian understanding of moral action is right, then it is certainly wrong to try to persuade someone with motivations. Acts of the will that depend on motive or inducement or argument for such an action cannot be virtuous. It will follow that it is not worthwhile to offer any argument to persuade men to any virtuous volition or voluntary action or to act in any evangelistic way toward them. Well, Edwards then deals with, with several different uh, little nuances uh, that come in that people argue and he he seeks to show how each of these things is uh, inconsistent, that it does not consist of the nature of true virtue, that they're internally contradictory. Uh, and there, there are many of these, we don't have time to, to go into them. But then he, he asks this question, but what about the will of God arising out of necessity? There's a difficulty in language and analogy, speaking of an infinite being particularly of orders of things and certain aspects of his being having dependence on other aspects and orders of decrees and so forth. <clears throat> but there is within this, as he talks about the different means and the different ends, we see that there is an order of decrees and there's a dependency, but he says it's very difficult to talk that way about an infinitely perfect being who has all of these things singularly in his mind at the same time. But that doesn't mean that there is not an order uh, within them as they exist in and of themselves. <clears throat> the, uh, but so, so the objection of, of an infinite being not being able to have these kinds of things is that there's some sort of privilege and dignity in being without moral necessity as will make it impossible to do anything other than always choose what is wisest and, and best. But if God's holiness is necessary and he always does what is right and always plans things that are right and plans them in perfectly logical order, and if it's necessary that he does this, then it would be, the conclusion would be that God himself is not virtuous. God himself cannot be praised because it is necessary for him always to do what is wisest and best. And so he discusses the sovereignty of God as consisting of, first of all, supreme, universal, and infinite power, supreme authority. His will is supreme, underived, and independent on anything outside of himself. His wisdom from which his will is derived is supreme, perfect, independent, and self-sufficient. And the reason why it is not dishonorable to be necessarily most holy is because holiness in itself is an excellent and honorable thing. And he does the same thing with God's wisdom, uh, with God's mercy, with God's grace, with God's righteousness, and so forth, that uh, it is absurd to argue that a being that <coughs> necessarily does what is right is not a righteous being 
simply because he has no propensity to do wrong. That kind of necessity would end up as uh, the kind of, of necessity that they object to is the kind of necessity to which we should uh, aspire and which we will have in heaven when we're free from the presence of sin and the possibility of sin. And heaven itself is a most holy place. So when we're reflecting the righteousness and holiness of God in heaven, this is a virtuous and praiseworthy thing that God has placed upon us. And so the Armenian view of righteousness and holiness and will would empty heaven of any opportunity for praise and uh, for, to glorify God and would empty us of any uh, kind of uh, view that heaven is the place where sanctification and holiness itself is complete for us. There's an objection, therefore, then, that makes God the author of sin. And Edwards deals with this. The same difficulty, he says, attends the Arminian understanding of foreknowledge, because God knew beforehand these things would happen, yet he created a world in which they would happen anyway. But what do they mean by the author of sin? Is God the author of sin in the sense that he is the sinner, that he is the agent of sin, or he is the actor of sin? No, he's not. Is he the permitter or the non-hinderer of sin? Yes, he is the permitter. He is the non-hinderer of sin. But he is the non-hinderer of sin for excellent ends and purposes. That is true. In the nature of things, Edwards argues, it could not be otherwise. Also, Scripture represents it as so. And also the worst crime that was ever committed, the most evil thing that was ever done was the death of Christ. And we know that it was something that was planned from before the foundation of the world. And as Peter says, that Herod and Pontius Pilate did exactly what God's will had determined beforehand should be done. So the question is, is there a being in the world in which the end justifies the means? Is the end something that is so superior to the means that are used that the end actually justifies the means. And of course, Edwards would say, and I hope we would agree, that God is the only being in which the end justifies uh, the means. He has established His glory as being dependent upon those things that are deeply involved in the incarnation and the redemptive work of Christ, which is dependent upon there being a group of people that need to be saved. And so there's a great difference in being the permitter on the one hand and the uh, on the one hand or the immediate producer of sin on the other. But that which makes his actions holy and righteous and necessary is his propensity to justify himself which is the greatest of all things and justifies all means by which he does it because the means by which he does it will be a a, a further manifestation of his Holiness. <clears throat> what is the difference then, continuing this idea of God, is God the author of sin? <clears throat> he, he affirms that it properly belongs to the supreme governor of the universe to order all important events in his universe. These events will be ordered by something. Uh, he uses the analogy of, of Joseph. God intended it, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. 
So men can do things that are evil while God's overall purpose in it is good. And Christ's crucifixion, which was done in an evil way by evil people for evil purposes, but in the plan of God was something that would result in His glory, would result in great good. The difference between God's secret will and His revealed will, or His will of precept and His will of disposing something, this, there's a difference that is necessary for us to perceive. We may, we may not be able to conceive of it in its entirety, but it is something that seems to be self-evident from uh, the nature of Scripture. God has predestined that Christ would be crucified, and yet this unjust crucifixion, this kind of trial in which there was no justice, is something that in precept would be forbidden by God. But the precept is given in order that the evil of man might be magnified and that the goodness and mercy of God uh, in overcoming the evil of man would also be magnified. And so again, when the end is something that transcends in goodness the means by which it is determined that men shall accomplish these things, that is something that is a righteous action in itself. He talks about uh, three things, one of which must be necessary for evil to be present in an action. That is, first of all, a thing is evil in itself. But the things that God determines proceed from infinite wisdom and the ultimate good to glorify Himself, and so the things He predetermines cannot be evil in themselves. It must, as far as His action is concerned. It must have a bad tendency that cannot be overcome, that cannot be used to a greater purpose. But the death of Christ... Our sin coming into the world brings Christ as a Redeemer, which is seen as the greatest of all goods in this world. Or a thing can be evil in itself if it proceeds from an evil disposition. But it does not proceed from an evil disposition in God, but from an internal disposition to glorify Himself and to allow other beings to know and to understand and to enjoy and to rejoice in His goodness. And so God does all of these things out of the reality of true virtue. They are manifestations of His benevolence toward being in general. And it is that benevolence toward being in general that is the motive out of which He has created the world and brought all things into existence in the world. All right, well, that's... Uh, that's there, there's more... <laughs> He never ends. There's, there's more to this, but this, uh, there's simply one, <clears throat> one thing, two more things I want to mention briefly. Some say, well, these, these arguments are too metaphysical and abstruse. They're, they're too complicated in order for people to understand. They're too complicated for people to actually engage. And so uh, because they're so complicated, it means that they cannot be a matter of common sense. It can't really appeal to the, to the normal man. And Edwards asks that and says, well, <coughs> it doesn't matter if they're metaphysical and abstruse. The thing is, are the arguments themselves good? Are they true? Second, he says that metaphysics are necessary for anything to some degree except for those things that are self-evident truth. And, and this is obviously not a self-evident truth because there's so many people that object to the idea that, uh, that a thing can be necessary morally and yet uh, be blameworthy or praiseworthy at the same time. 
And so some argument is necessary, and it does involve metaphysics. And also, this metaphysical and abstruse argument is made necessary by Arminian nonsense. Um, you have to show what is actually sensible. You have to demonstrate that the Arminian position that they think is self-evident uh, is something that actually is destructive of true uh, morality and a false understanding of the will. So in all of this, Edward says the foundation of Arminianism is destroyed, but the foundations of Calvinism are established. We have a universal determining providence that is good and righteous and holy. We are set with the doctrine of total depravity as a reality that is decreed, and yet that men are blamable, that are caught in this uh, reality of, of, of total depravity through their union with Adam. It, it verifies the necessity and the goodness of efficacious and irresistible grace. Uh, it sets universal and absolute decree within the realm of God's holiness and God's wisdom. It justifies the necessity of particular and absolute election. It shows why it is necessary for God to have an absolute design of salvation in the elect, for the elect in the atoning work of Christ. And it also shows that uh, God's decrees involve the certain perseverance of the saints, which will be accomplished through His grace, but through their perseverance in holiness and their desire for holiness. And so Arminianism is shown to be nonsense. Calvinism is shown to be completely consistent with this uh, argument related to the nature of the human will. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.